Blessed Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Apart from your word, Lord, we are lost and in darkness. Apart from your word, we drown in a world of words which are blocking out the sound of your voice. Help us, Lord, attune our ears to hear your voice and your voice alone, that of our good shepherd who calls us each by name. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so we are in Leviticus 21. I want to start with this. This is a clip actually from a few years ago now. Um, interviewing or talking to some folks who are not Christians about some of their objections to Christianity and to Christians. So it's just a, about a minute long. Let's start with this. Oh, hold on. Hold on, Pastor. You want volume, right? I, I do. That might be or at least subtitles. <laughs> Subtitles, yeah. <laughs> you can panelize them. Christians are old fashioned. Hypocritical. Anti gay. Live in a bubble. Too involved in politics. Uh, they believe in their fake. Phony. Talk out of both sides of their face. Um, have a list of rules and regulations that they have to follow all the time. And they're definitely not fun. Christians always have ulterior motives. So a lot of my friends, when they think about Christians, they think about people who have no clue, really. Uh, they live in a world that's not real. They're just kind of their own little existence, doing their own thing. Um, and they are hypocritical. You know, some of them, again, we say certain things, we don't follow that. People assume that you're coming from this closed-minded worldview. My non-Christian friends think that I'm always judging them, that I think that I'm better than them. They assume that Christians don't like gay people. I feel like we're just in a place right now where we have to surprise people and challenge their assumptions about what Christianity is because the assumptions that people have about Christianity are so firm at this point that they can actually parody us with pretty good accuracy. <laughs> yeah, so um, this is in conjunction with a book that actually came out more than a decade ago now called Unchristian, uh, which did some research and um, trying to glean the perceptions of Christians from outsiders, okay? And here, the most common one, the most popular one, 87% said judgmental, uh, hypocritical, too political, out of touch with reality, old-fashioned, insensitive to others, or simply boring. <laughs> does the church have a PR problem? <laughs> or does it go deeper than that? Um, I, I always find it interesting that the one that uh, along with being judgmental, but the one that comes up more than anything else is that Christians are hypocritical, right? Any truth to that? Yes. Mm -hmm. you, you better believe it, right? So I will all say, you know, yeah, we're all hypocrites, and you're one too. You want to come and join us? <laughs> um, but uh, a lot of this has to come, uh, goes along with how we as the priesthood of the baptized, how we reflect and show forth the heart of our Savior. And in chapter 21 of Leviticus, it's a chapter that's focusing on the holiness of priests. And, of course, in an Old Testament context, that was a particular um, group among the people of God. But as we read this through New Testament eyes, we see that we are all part of the priesthood of the baptized. And so one of the big takeaways from this chapter is going to be, number one on, on your handout, that priests are to be above reproach. Priests are to be above reproach. Uh, this is one of the, the uh, uh, injunctions given in 1 Timothy 3, where it talks about pastors as well. It's a cartoon from the New Yorker 
Everybody's fighting down below. He says, well, so far, I'm managing to stay above the fray. <laughs> um, but this is the part of the calling for us as the priesthood of the baptized is to be above reproach. Now, I think it's a little bit of a, a question. What does that mean? When you hear above reproach, what things come to mind? How, how do you imagine what that means as, for us as believers and as the priesthood of the baptized? Sinless. Sinless. Okay. Wah, wah. <laughs> yeah, but maybe that's the perception, Almost right? Perception, yes. Yeah. What would you say, George? Almost perfect. Almost perfect. Yeah. Okay, there's a little bit of room, breathing room. Yeah. <laughs> what else? Above reproach. When we think about why Christians get called hypocritical, what, what are they hypocritical about? Are we judgmental of others? Okay, are we judgmental of others? Why do you think people recognize that as being hypocritical? Because who, are, who am I to judge you? Okay, so who am I to judge you? Do you think part of it is that even for those outside, they have some inkling that as Christians, don't you have a message of forgiveness? I wonder about that. Matt, were you going to say something? Uh, just that I, meaning-wise, it seems to have something to do with embarrassment, too, or, or not scandalizing. Okay, not scandalizing <laughs> others by you, the way that you live your Christian not, not giving an offense. Not giving an offense. Yeah, or being offensive in... in the way we treat other people or the way we live among them, either by acting we're different from them right. or that they're different from us. Right. Um, now, at the end of the day, um, there's all kinds of ways you may have noticed that people can be offended. Um, <laughs> really? It's just something I've started to pick up on. <laughs> um, and so if, if as Christians we think, well, I've got to... I just can't ever be offensive to anybody. Can you do that? No. no. Uh, but what you can strive to do is to be led by the truth and mercy of our Lord so that um, recognizing, yeah, we're not sinless. To be above reproach doesn't mean that you're flawless or even almost perfect. It means that you're striving more and more to be conformed to the heart of your Father and to share his heart with others, right? Um, and... Uh, to, to the extent that we're able not to put a stumbling block in the path of others. Not always easy. Yeah, go ahead. I would say Christians probably have a rep of being the ones who are often overly offended. Oh, interesting. You yeah. know, I mean, you think of like, you know, you know, Tipper Gore back in the days about, you know, with the whole thing about, it was all about, the, uh, you know, putting, uh, you know, advisory stickers on certain CDs and, you know, with, you know, Popular culture is saying this is a this is offensive. This is offensive. You should get rid of this, 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 and this. You know, it's interesting now that we're being perceived as being the offensive ones. But sure. probably most of my life has been like Christians are like, oh, you guys are so pure, you can't handle any of this kind of. Sure. Thing. Yeah. We're the, we're the original cancel culture. Yeah. Well, right, right, right. there's some truth to that. Huh. Well, as we'll see in in Leviticus 21, it calls priests to be above reproach, but ultimately in all of that, it's not for a kind of legalistic sanctimoniousness, but to point us, right, that's the phrase for you, but to point us to the one in whom we find perfection, right, in, in Christ alone, the only unblemished high priest. Uh, so let's, let's dig into this, chapter 21, and I want to start, I'm going to read um, uh, a few verses from the first paragraph and a few from the second paragraph. <clears throat> and the Lord said to Moses, 
Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, No one shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people, except for his closest relatives, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, or his virgin sister, who's near to him because she has no husband. For her, he may make himself unclean. He shall not make himself unclean as a husband among his people and so profane himself. They shall not make bald patches on their heads, nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts on their body. They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God, for they offer the Lord's food offerings, the bread of their God. Therefore, they shall be holy. Now jump down to verse 10. The priest who is chief among his brothers, on whose head the anointing oil is poured, and who has been consecrated to wear the garments, shall not let the hair of his head hang loose, nor tear his clothes. He shall not go into any dead bodies, nor make himself unclean, even for his father or for his mother. He shall not go out of the sanctuary, lest he profane the sanctuary of his God, for the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is on him. I am the Lord. So in chapter 21, um, God speaks to his priests to be above reproach, but this in a, a couple of very kind of uh, just mundane sorts of ways. How are the priests to respond in a season of grieving when there is death? And then, as we'll see, when it comes to marriage. But first, let's talk about the grief and death. And here in these verses I've just shared with you, God makes unmistakably clear that, number two on your handout, death is the enemy of life. Death is the enemy of life. We see this not only in the the teachings with regard to Leviticus, but throughout the scriptures, including the Old Testament, death is not viewed as a friend. In our day and age, when people talk about death, many times they'll say things like this, that, that death is a friend or that death is just part of life. And there's some truth to this, but it misses the ultimate truth, the biblical truth, which is that death is not a friend, nor is it meant to be part of life. It's not meant to be part of life. It's not just part of the the natural life cycle. But in fact, death is the enemy of life. Take a look uh, briefly at 1 Corinthians 15. We spent a couple of weeks in this chapter in worship, and our lectionary took us through there. And, uh, Pastor Newton preached from this um, what, a couple of weeks ago. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 through 26. Paul makes this crystal clear in this passage. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 15, uh, starting with verse 21. For as by a man came death, By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is viewed unequivocally in the scriptures as an enemy. Yeah, Bob. Is death personal? What do you mean? Is death a person? Is it a being? Oh, interesting. Like the Grim Reaper? Yeah, yeah. Um, So it's... Rather than just a cessation of life, that it's an animated thing. Right. Um, So, yeah, 
is death personal the way that we think about Satan in some sense being evil personified as death personified? I'm not sure the tradition of the Grim Reaper specifically where that came from, but certainly in, in the scriptures, it seems as though death is personified. Later in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul will say, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Almost as though death is this, this villain who runs contrary and counter to God's purposes. I know that in the ancient world, there was um, the personification of death as one of the pagan gods of Mot or Maveth. Um, this is in Hebrew. And there's that great passage in Isaiah 25 where it talks about death will be swallowed up in victory because uh, Mot, this uh, ancient uh, pagan god, was viewed as being the great swallower, the one that gobbled up everything in the end. But at the end of days when Jesus comes again, the swallower gets swallowed. It's kind of what Isaiah 25 shows us. But do you have thoughts on that? Yeah. Jesus says he's an enemy or it's an enemy. And I don't know how you'd have an inanimate thing being an enmity with you in right. the sense of having some kind of negative yeah. energy. Yeah, you know I mean? right, exactly. I mean, I think, I think it's the scriptures, how the scriptures kind of encourage us to think about death as this, as this active enemy um, that is not the way things are supposed to be. Yeah, George. So, before the fall, yeah, uh, there was no death, right? Right. And okay, okay. Uh, <laughs> so death, death is the fruit of the is the fruit of the fall. Okay, um, one man sinned, then by his sin came death in Romans five, and so um, some people will debate whether or not there was um, death of other kinds of creatures whether human death only was introduced with sin and the fall, okay? Um, but to be sure, there was no human death pre-fall. Yeah, absolutely. Death is not just part of God's original plan. So if there was no fall, plan. Adam and Eve would still be alive. If there were no fall, Adam and Eve would still be alive. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Sally. Yeah, I've always wondered in the Garden of Eden when the Satan said to Eve, Oh, you surely will not die. Right. Have they had any idea what that meant? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. When, when you shall surely not die. They don't even have a, a frame of reference for that. No, oh, well, I don't know what this guy's talking about dying. We're not worried about that. Yeah. Uh, what's death? They didn't have a word. What's death? Don't even have a, have a word for it. Um, but we, we see here in Leviticus 21, when God makes these strong injunctions, don't, even, don't make yourself unclean for the dead among his people. Because for his priests, uh, he, he's showing death is the ultimate uncleanness. And um, in one podcast I was listening to this week, uh, the, the speaker put it this way. He said, a corpse is the microcosm of everything that is wrong with God's world. A corpse is the microcosm of everything that is wrong with God's world. Because when we, we see the body that we're laying in the grave, everything about us tells us it's not the way that it's supposed to be. Because it's not. It's not. Now, I always hasten to add, that doesn't mean that in some cases, death can't be received in a merciful sort of way, that we can't be grateful also that it comes. And indeed, that knowing that Christ Jesus has overcome death, he has already beheaded that enemy and <laughs> held it up for the world to see so that now we need not fear it, right? But that's a different thing from saying whether or not, oh yeah, death is, is a friend rather than a, an enemy. No, it's absolutely not. Now, one thing to note, too, kind of in, in passing here, what's the connection? It's kind of implied, but it's not explicitly stated. What's the connection about 
between somebody dying, a relative or a friend among the priests, and him becoming unclean? What's the assumption there that, of what's going to happen that, he, that would make him unclean? Is it just the fact that somebody died, boom, you're automatically unclean? What? Touching, it's touching the dead body. And this is something that in you know, the 21st century, you've got the, the funeral, funeral homes and so forth, we just forget about. How are they handling, you know, when somebody passes away, it's the people of the community that were handling it, right? Uh, I mean, it was, grief in that sense was a very concrete reality and that whole process of, of mourning. And so that's kind of assumed here. You're going to be touching the dead body. And for the priests, uh, they're not to do that. There's only um, limited exceptions. The closest relatives, mother, father, son, daughter, brother, or sister. And uh, verse 4 is not exactly clear, but it seems like it might be saying, not even for your wife, not even for your wife, could the priest make himself unclean by touching the dead body. Trying to, stressing the fact that this uncleanness is not the way that God desires things to be. That means that his wife was dead, he couldn't touch her. Yeah, that's the, that's the okay, suggestion. That's yeah, right. Um, this might be, this doesn't give a, um, a this is, doesn't excuse it by any means, but this might give more of an explanation for in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Why is it that the priest and the Levite pass by and don't want to go down there? Because then they would be able to do their duties. Yeah. They, you know, they, want to, they want to be able to, to do their duty. Right. Or the other way around, they're bringing sacred meat back. And they okay. can't eat it if, they go, if they're unclean. Sure. Then they can't eat the food they received as their wage. As their wage, sure, yeah. Because it's on the way down. Right, they're coming back, right. Um, and so, this again, this isn't to excuse their actions or inactions, as the case may be, but it gives a little more context to it. That, um, in fact, it may have been their good intentions that kept them from going to help, right? And not even just the fact that they were jerks or uncompassionate or something. So I, I think that just adds an, an interesting little wrinkle to that story. Oh, well played. Jesus called them jerks. Jesus called them jerks. That's for sure. so, it's, so it's interesting. Jesus is then, according in this light, telling a story, using, and he's basically saying, like, these Levitical laws that were established should not supersede compassion for others. Saying that mercy and compassion is ultimately the goal. Right. Oh, right. Well, um, and this is, I mean, this, again and again, when, whether you're talking about the Sabbath, you know, uh, should I, you know, he holds the guy up. Should we help or hurt on the Sabbath? And they're like, oh, is this a trick question? What do we do? Yeah, Bob. Uh, just real quick, is there a distinction there in, in this chapter between what the high priest can touch or not touch and what the priest can touch or not touch? Yeah, so even for the high priest, it's even more restrictive. So it says that for the priest who is chief among his brothers, talking about the high priest, he should not even go into any dead bodies nor make himself unclean, even for his father or his mother. And so the high priest is utterly set apart and is to have no interactions with death whatsoever. Now, but think about this, how this has been inverted through the ministry of our Lord Jesus, not through, only through teachings such as the Good Samaritan, but remember the story in Luke 7 of when Jesus... Um, stops by for a beer, B-I-E-R, not B-E-R. In Nain, remember this? And the young man is being brought out. And then Jesus goes, it's not depicted here, but he goes up and he touches 
the beard, touches the coffin. And it tell, Luke tells us that straight away they stopped. Now, I think they stopped because uh, just they're so stunned. Wait a second. This guy is, is coming up and touching this unclean thing. But remember how we have we've seen, especially in the chapter on leprosy, we talked about how there, um, with leprosy and with these other points of uncleanness, there is this, um, what a psychologist calls, a negative, um, a negative dependency. But that in Jesus, that's inverted. So now there is a positive dependency. It's as though Jesus has the positive contagion that's able to overcome those uncleannesses. So that when he touches the leper, Jesus doesn't become unclean, the leper becomes healed. When he touches the dead person, Jesus doesn't become unclean. The dead person comes to life. And this is, I think, most powerfully and beautifully um, depicted in modern times through that great story of the ragman, which I've you know, shared, uh, I think, in a, a Monday Thursday a couple of, of years ago. But remember that story of the ragman from Walt Wangerin, where the ragman is taking other people's dirty rags and replacing them with the clean ones until ultimately, it lead, as he's kind of assuming all of their, not just uncleannesses, but their maladies onto himself. The whole ministry of Jesus, not just at the cross, but the whole ministry of Jesus is him absorbing sin and all its effects in the world. This is what he, he comes to do. And then finally, burying it in the ground and killing it off once and for all so that when he rises from the dead, now death has been utterly defeated. And we have that victory in him. Yeah. He's not antiseptic, is he? What do you mean by that? When he touches a dead body, that death has to go into him. Yes. When he touches a leprous body, that leprosy has to go into him. He bears it. It's not like he's the Teflon guy. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. He's not the Teflon guy, not just antiseptic. He bears it. And I think this is important, too. Think about even like the, the Good Samaritan. Ultimately, we understand that parable and the, the Samaritan in it to be Jesus himself. And when we talk about the law, we need to recognize um, that the scripture never soft pedals it. In the book of Leviticus, you don't get these halfway measures. We need to see the full teeth of the law. And in chapter 20, you know, again and again and again, if you do this thing, you're killed, you're stoned, you're burned to death. But the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death, full stop. The only way for it to be overcome is for Jesus himself to take on the punishment that we rightly deserve for our sin, not just by blinking a a blind eye at it, but by absorbing it and then abolishing it. Sin has to be addressed and redressed. Um, One one last thought, and this was was brought up in the same podcast. Um, It was pointed out that Think of how in our funerals, we have the casket there, right? And how, in, um, how just utterly un- incomprehensible that would have been in Old Testament times. Where you would never, ever bring a dead body. You wouldn't want to touch a dead body. And to bring it into the tabernacle would have been a sacrilege beyond knowing. But this, too, is part of the sign of our Lord's victory through his resurrection. That now... When we have a funeral, we're able to bring the, the, our loved one into the holy place. And also, in this um, picture, I think, Hans, this is from a, a screenshot from, from your dad's funeral. Mm-hmm. Um, we overlay the baptismal pall, 
which is symbolic of the fact that when you were baptized, you were clothed with Christ's righteousness. And if we have died with him, if we have shared his death, it says in Romans 6, we shall also share in his resurrection. And so it's just another sign of that ultimate resurrection victory and how Jesus has reversed that curse and that the course of uncleanness. It's a beautiful, powerful thing. But how do you see the world treating death today versus this kind of biblical picture? How, how, I mean, what are ways that compares and contrasts with what the scriptures are teaching us about this understanding of death? Do you, do you see it more as a friend or as an enemy or as something else? What, are, what things kind of are suggestive to you? Yes, Sally. We talk about dying in dignity or your dignity or your choice. You okay. Know, um, with euthanasia now, um, they're going to die in dignity sure, and, right. according to their choice and their terms. And right. So there's that desire that we want to die on our terms, right? We've, we've, throughout our lives, you know, we try to be in control, and at the end we want to to have that control also, sure. Celebration of life, you see that a lot. Of okay, celebration of life, uh, which in itself is not a, a bad thing, right? Um, but there's something about that that, that uh, I think there's a temptation to tamp down death with that and just pretend like it's not, it's not there. We're just gonna do the celebration side of it. Yeah, Priscilla. I think it's, um, the world wants to avoid death. Yeah. There's an emphasis on youth and vitality. And yeah, right. Yeah, that emphasis on youth and vitality. Let's just pretend that death isn't there. And, you know, no matter how old you get, like there's all, we've got more makeup for you ladies to make you look younger and all these sorts of things that, um, that the world can offer to try and pretend like it's not there. Yeah, Carla. I think the dangerous celebration of life is you focus on the person. Ah, they yeah. Were, they were so good. They did this and this and this and this. Right. And the focus tends not to be on Christ as salvation. Right. Yeah, there, there can be this focus on the person and suddenly we become un-Lutheran and we talk about all their good deeds, right? <laughs> um, this is why in our, in our Lutheran tradition and other Christian traditions, um, we tend to not do eulogies in the context of the service. I'm just going to tell you this right now so you're not disappointed when you die. Um, sorry, that, is that some gallows humor? But um, um, that doesn't mean that there isn't a time and place, of course, for talking about the, the things that we've learned from our loved ones, but just within the context of the funeral, the focus, it's a worship service. The focus is on Jesus and how, hey, Jesus saved even this sinner, right? Thank God for that. Yeah, Bob. Is it possible to have a celebration of life in Christ? Uh, sure, that yeah. shift things quite a bit. Yeah, bit-ish. celebration of life in Christ. Yes. Then the eulogy would be not about how good they were, but but how they showed us Christ. I, and that's how it, yeah, exactly. And that's, very powerful. that I, I think makes a big, big difference. Yeah, Hans and then Chip. So I'll write my eulogy for you. Okay, <laughs> I look forward to that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, It'll be good. <laughs> yeah. um, to answer your question, I think they want to redefine what death is. Okay. Because abortion is killing the unborn child. Okay, so so they're they're saying, well, we're just going to redefine what death is because it's not death if it's if we're killing the child inside the womb and sure. So in some contexts it's just redefining death altogether right. and giving it a different name. Yeah. Uh, Chip, were you gonna... So it, it seems like the uh, the Levitical laws 
are, like, you know, they avoid the dead body, they avoid being, so that, that seems very similar to what we're saying we're having today, but it seems vastly different than the, like the New Testament or at least the, the, the priest pastoral world today. I think often pastors and priests are the ones that are most near to death. They're the ones that are yeah. at that bedside. They're the ones that are, are probably seeing people in their worst and seeing families at their, at their worst. So right. I think it goes back to what Bob was uh, was saying, how, 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 how God is... Uh, how Jesus is is entering. You said entering into this yeah. this uh, time, and so uh, I actually see a lot of you know the Old Testament and now is very similar actually. No, yeah, that's not, interesting. Not for the everyday right. person who had to carry that person out there. Sure. But the example of persons closest to God then was avoiding death. Right. And now the person who closest to God probably wrong term, but closest to death. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Oh, that's a, that's a really interesting point. I mean, it's like. Having been long, I mean, I think God is catechizing his people through these actions to teach them that death is a bad thing, that they, they, they needed to, to see that. And also, there's, again, this um, not drawing, you know, the life force from the dead person because, you know, those sorts of rituals uh, were very common. But, yeah, there's almost, it's like we're still in Old Testament times in some ways how it's, now death can be, insofar as death just gets avoided or not, uh, don't have that interaction with it. Beyond our world, there are other cultures that when a person dies, they want them buried ASAP. They need to have death out of their sight. Yeah. The corpse has to be. It, it, it speaks probably what this is yeah. saying. is something very, very wrong about yeah. this. Yeah. I mean, we cross cultures, cross time, there is that just innate sense, this is not right. And isn't that interesting? Like, that's just in our bones. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has set eternity into the heart of man. We have that sense of eternity. It's, it's innate so that when somebody dies, we rightly are, feel like, wait a second, this isn't, this isn't supposed to happen. Uh, because it's not. We're created to live forever in fellowship with God. So, okay, well, we'll um, I think we could spend uh, all, all, all day with that. But um, <laughs> suffice it to say that God has upended that, that view of death. Go ahead, Hans. This is uh, situational, but uh, we talked about shaving their hair or trimming their beard yeah. so they could what what is the reason behind that i mean like yeah that's uh, again th this is these were some of the the common symbols of mourning among pagan religions right so you're cutting yourself you're shaving your head ripping cloth so forth i mean the, the ripping of garments certainly we see that in the old testament as well but it's discouraging you know mimicking the way that the that the world is regarding death yeah and mourning death yeah that's right Okay, so the other thing, in addition to grieving, is chapter 21 talks about uh, marriage, too, and with priests. And so I want to jump back to verse 7, chapter 21. They shall not marry a prostitute or a woman who's been defiled. Again, God only has to give these rules because apparently this was an issue, right, among, among the priests. Neither shall they marry a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. You shall sanctify him, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord, who sanctify you, am holy. And the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by whoring, profanes her father, she shall be burned with fire. And uh, jump down to verse 13. Speaking of the high priest, he shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow or a divorced woman or a woman who's been defiled or a prostitute. These he shall not marry. Everything it says above plus widows, right? He shall take as his wife a virgin of his own people, that he may not profane his offspring among his people, for I am the Lord who sanctifies him. Okay. 
So also in the family life, the priest is to show forth his holiness. And basically, the idea is the priest requires a blameless wife. Mm. Um, my wife is not here. She, so, um, I fortunately have one. But it, this, this is, uh, I mean, it's a high, high bar that's being set here. But once again, I think that this is pointing us forward to Christ, who is our bridegroom looking for his church. But you think of this, the church is not the perfect bride, right? Jesus goes in search, not of the blameless one, but the blameful one, if I can put it that way. And God himself already foreshadows this, especially in the prophetic book of Hosea, right? You guys familiar with the book of Hosea? This is one of those that can get lost among all of the the so-called minor prophets. But Hosea tells a story where, well, if you want to turn there, Oh, I turned right to it. Nice. Uh, it's after Daniel and uh, what? Before Amos, maybe? Before Joel. Before Joel. If that's any help to you whatsoever. And if, if you hit the one page of Obadiah, you've gone too far. Um, so it just starts out. Here's, here's Hosea's call. You know, it's call day and... All right, you're going here, prophet. You're going here, prophet. Hosea, let's hear where your call goes to. Verse 2, Hosea chapter 1. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Okay, God, thank you for that. (laughs) So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. But what God's doing here is this, it's an embodied prophecy. And one of the most beautiful passages from the book, turn the page to chapter two, or how he, he kind of lays out what he's up to in this. So take a prostitute to be your wife because this is the people of Israel have prostituted themselves. Now God says, chapter two, verse 14, therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness. Um, and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal, my false god. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. So already... In Leviticus 21, with the, the injunctions that are given to the priest with respect to his marriage, he's meant to be this picture of God's desire to be united with a pure, spotless bride. That's the goal and the purpose. And ultimately, what Jesus does as the divine bridegroom is he pursues you and me, not in all of our virginal purity, but instead in our impurity and our sinfulness. Think of this beautiful passage in Ephesians 5. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, 
that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. With language echoing the words of Leviticus 21 and elsewhere, Jesus says, well, I can't find a pure spotless bride. I'm just going to have to make one. Martin Luther says that the love of God does not find that which is lovable, but loves that which is unlovable, and so makes it a proper object of his affection. I always will go back to um, that wonderful Lent hymn. We'll sing it in the next few weeks. My song is love unknown. My song is love unknown. My Savior's love to me. Love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. The love of God does not discover that lovable one, but creates it. And again, there's so many fairy tales and myths throughout history that capture this, whether it be, you know, Pygmalion, the story uh, of C.S. Lewis tells this story until we have faces, or the Velveteen Rabbit, or even the Christmas Pig. Um, There's so many stories that are getting at this ultimate story of the Lord, the divine bridegroom, who creates a lovable, spotless bride. Yeah, Bob. Yeah, this whole thing about virginity, while being married is sacred, at the same time there's an innocence in virginity, and he restores our innocence, which is different from just being forgiven. Yeah, right. He restores our innocence. He gets us back to the beginning. Uh, We are made totally pure and new. You think once again of, of Psalm 51. We've We've gone back to that um, psalm before. Psalm 51, wash me and I shall be clean. Cleanse me and I shall be whiter than snow. Whiter than snow, not just white. Whiter than snow. See, That now being found in the Lord Jesus, the transfigured Lord, the one who was in, uh, Mark says, his, his clothes were whiter than anybody could bleach. It's a laundry metaphor. Right? <laughs> we have been cleansed thus in the purity of our Lord Jesus. Uh, it's a, a powerful Beautiful picture. So uh, reflections or, or thoughts, comments uh, about that? Yeah, go ahead, Sarah. I wish the New Testament, you, you had the sermon on the different kinds of love. Yeah. And I wish the New Testament would use those Greek words because we have a word for love yeah. that encompasses all the different kinds right. of love. Right. So I'm always curious when I'm reading which love are they talking about? Yeah. And which kind of love are they talking about? So I wish the translators would use that. Would use that. Yeah, that would be helpful. Right. Um, sometimes it'll say, let, let brotherly love continue, something like that, um, where it can be a little bit clearer that it's talking about philia or friendship. But yeah, it's often... It's often lost. But this is, when we talk about Ephesians 5, obviously this is the epitome of agape, right? Agape, yes. Selfless, sacrificial love. And the only way that we can um, exercise that kind of love is through the power of the Holy Spirit. Correct. Because our our human nature couldn't love that way. No. I mean, we're drawn to that storge, that love of familiarity. I mean, this is what Jesus says. Look, sinners can do that. That, that, that's not hard for them, to love those who love them. Agape is only possible through, rooted in the, the love of Christ and the power of the Spirit. That's right. Okay, a couple, a couple more um, things to get through to the, the... Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead, Hans. Uh, how come 
Gomer wasn't put to the fire. Oh. If, if Leviticus says that's what's supposed to be happened. Well, to the daughter of the of the priest. So um, I don't know that uh, Gomer was a daughter of. Uh, well, except for this, like. But in general, was yeah. There, was there a penalty? A special dispensation given for Gomer. Yeah, or or I, I know she was brought back later. She was redeemed, right? Uh, yeah, no, it's a good that's a good question. I don't know off the uh, offhand, but. Yeah, because the priesthood was such in shambles, nobody was well, that's, to do it. Then. Yeah, that's probably that's probably a, a big part of it. The priesthood it's all in shambles, and so nobody's following these things. Well, he wasn't a priest; he was a prophet. Right, he was a prophet. He was so not he's a priest. Not of the tribal, tribal Levi. It's right. very possible she's not Jewish. She's in fact, she's probably a cultist prostitute. Yeah. So her prostitution has a lot to do with worshiping false gods. God wants to go the full way in this vivid illustration. You know, sometimes for children's messages, they say you should have some kind of, uh, you know, symbol this is, there. This, this is no PG. This, yeah, this is not a PG uh, children's message there. Okay. Uh, just to kind of tie this together, as the chapter goes on then, um, back in, in chapter Leviticus 21, the Lord then spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, None of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. The sacrifices were to be unblemished. So is the one who offers the sacrifices. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near. A man blind or lame, or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long, or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand, or a hunchback, or a dwarf, or a man with a defect in his sight, or an itching disease, or scabs, or, sorry guys, crushed testicles. <laughs> Strangely specific here. Um, no man of the offspring of Aaron, the priest, who has a blemish, shall come near to offer the Lord's food offerings. Since he has a blemish, he shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. He may eat the bread of his God. This is not ruling people out from the, the fellowship but both of the most holy and of the holy things, but he shall not go through the veil or approach the altar because he has a blemish that he may not profane my sanctuaries, for I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So Moses spoke to Aaron and to his sons and to all the people of Israel. So once again, the idea is that the priests and the priesthood is to be a kind of forerunner of humanity redeemed and restored so that those who have some blemish they're not fit to, to serve in that capacity. You wonder, I mean, this must have really limited the number of people who could be in there. No scabs. I don't even know how you avoid having scabs. But in any case, um, the, it's meant to be this picture, this anticipation, this icon of the renewed humanity. Which, when you think about us then as the church, as the priesthood of the baptized, God has called us similarly to be an anticipation, a foretaste of what he is going to do for the whole creation. That for all those who trust in him, that we are being renewed and restored after his image. Now, to go back to where we started with, how are we doing in that? <laughs> Not always so good, right? But that's the high holy calling that we have as the, as the people of God. That we are being renewed in his image. And therefore, he is reflecting and refracting through us his love and his grace to the world. I want to conclude with uh, this thought and, re and reflection here. That Israelites, that God's people, 
received kind of trickle-down holiness, if you will. This is kind of the Old Testament picture, and uh, for you visual learners, I've created a little diagram here. <laughs> so you might think of it like this. We see this all throughout the book of Leviticus. You picture it like this triangle, not um, like the food pyramid, but instead you have the holiness <laughs> pyramid, okay? And you have God at the top, and then you have the high priest, and below him the priests, and then the people as a whole. And you might put underneath that the world, the nations. See, And so the idea is that the holiness goes out from God and is transmitted through the high priest to the priests, to the people as a whole, and then out through them to the world. This is the kind of trickle-down vision of holiness, if you will, that you have in the Old Testament. It was consistently through. How does this change in the New Testament? Well, now, those of us who are of Christ, and it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and um, you can look it up later if you like, but this is where it says, not many of you were of noble birth, not many of you were wise, but now, for all who are in Christ Jesus, he is our redemption and our holiness and our sanctification. Now, our holiness is drawn straightforwardly from our Lord Jesus because there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So that now we don't have the high priest and the priest and all. Now, Jesus alone is our high priest and our mediator. So to contrast it then, here's the, the New Testament picture of holiness, is that you have God and his son, our Lord Jesus, as that one mediator. And now all of us are part of the priesthood of the baptized and his holiness is transmitted to you directly in and through Christ. So I was talking to Sally before um, the, the Bible study here. It's as though we are ordained and when we're baptized. Ba baptism is an ordination into the priesthood of the baptized. And the pastor has a particular role and calling, a, a distinct vocation. God calls pastors to uh, publicly proclaim his good news and to uh, forgive sins. But the office of the keys, as we call it, belongs to all of the baptized. All of y'all are part of that priesthood, see. Um, and so we have this exalted calling and status so that we can see all the things that talks about Leviticus 21, when we read these things about the priests, you ought to see yourself in that as part of the, the priesthood of the baptized, uh, which changes our, our approach and our outlook to the world. This is why, why then it'll say in Hebrews 2, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Now we are brothers of Jesus. We are fellow heirs of all the promises. We are part of the priesthood of the baptized. So then I guess the question is, is that a relief or is it a responsibility? Yes, yes. 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 right, exactly. It's both those things. It's a privilege that we have been called out as the ecclesia, the called out ones to bear his name to the nations. Yeah, I think it's really, really important that we don't get this confused. I think. We all grew up in such a world that ruled the church that we sometimes confuse our priesthood as a baptized with activities inside the church. Right. So who gets to do it this Sunday? And he instituted the priesthood in Exodus 19, and he prefaced it by 
I've chosen you. The whole world belongs to me. Yes. But I make you. So the context for our priesthood is not the church proper. It is the world. Yeah. And we lose sight of that completely because we've been churched for so long. So there's all this fighting about who gets to do what on Sunday or this guy can't do this on Sunday or this woman can't do this on... I mean, wrong context. And, and it throws us way off. The context is the world. The that context now is the world. The, and that's where right. we exercise all... Everything you were given as our pastor is given to every priest. Correct. Yep. Exercised in the world. Yep. And I've, I've put up this... Uh, way of thinking about it before of, you know, the pastor is to the people as the people are to the world, right? So I have uh, a distinct calling and vocation to serve you with the word and sacrament. And now you go out into the world and bring that good news and bear Jesus to your neighbors. I have that calling too. And as much as I'm a disciple, right? So I, you know, the, the buck doesn't stop here for me either. Um, but we go out and there used to be these signs, my church had it, and some people said, that's too cheesy, but I think there was a lot of truth to it, where you would go out into the parking lot, and it would say, you are now entering the mission field, right? right. We don't have a parking lot, so we don't have that sign. Um, <laughs> truth to tell, you enter the mission field even when you come in here, too, because you're, you're sinners as well, right? God's doing his, his mission here, but then it goes out into the world, into our neighborhoods, where you are set apart as ambassadors for the king to bear his good news to your neighbors. So, all right, that's chapter 21 of Leviticus. We'll continue with uh, some of these themes in chapter 22 next week, and we'll push through. Looking ahead to the end, it will come soon and very soon. God be with you.